Welcome back to the Grand Valley Church Podcast, a community of faith in Brandon, Manitoba. We hope this message helps you meet Jesus and grow in faith. Last Sunday was Easter, and it's the Sunday of the year that we kind of put this special emphasis on the fact that on Easter 2,000 years ago, that even though Jesus was crucified, even though he, they, people thought that everything he had started in motion had come to an end, the truth is that Jesus came back to life. And we've been talking, we started this series called Invisible God of saying, how do we have a relationship with a God we can't see? Because up until Easter... Jesus had spent three years with his disciples. He had lived with them every single day. They traveled with him. They saw everything that Jesus did firsthand. They had witnessed all his teachings, all his miracles, all the interactions he had had with people. And then the unthinkable happened. Even though Jesus had kind of told his disciples this would happen, they didn't believe him. They didn't accept it. And so Jesus gets arrested and crucified and laid in a tomb. And the disciples were left with this question, what now? And I can't imagine their mental state during those three days, that gap between Friday and the resurrection of wondering what was going on, what was going to happen, what the three years their life had been defined by following Jesus, what now? And then reports started coming that the tomb was empty. The women went to the tomb and they took spices. And we talked about last week how the fact that they took spices and perfumes with them meant that they were expecting Jesus to be in the grave. They weren't expecting to find it empty. They were expecting to go and do the next step in preparing his body for burial. But they arrive there and the tomb's empty and two messengers from heaven, two angels show up and tell them, why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? And so they go back and tell the disciples this, and the disciples don't believe it at first, but Peter at least goes to the tomb, and he opens and he looks in there and he says, he doesn't understand, where is Jesus? So what we're doing in this series is we're talking about the times when Jesus rose from the grave, the times when he appeared to his disciples and had something to teach and kind of equip them, and we're asking this question, how were the disciples supposed to remain connected to Jesus Now, when Jesus is now invisible, because before he was visible with them, they saw him every day, but now Jesus is invisible. So again, they went to the tomb, and we're going to pick up the story from Luke 24 on that same day. And so the women had gone to the tomb expecting there to be, be a body. And when they told the disciples, Peter didn't believe them, but he at least went to go and check it out. The rest of the disciples didn't even dare go to the tomb and found it empty. And what we talked about last week was this line that I'm quoting from Andy Stanley, nobody expected no body. Everyone expected that when Jesus was killed, he would be in that tomb, that he was dead, that this was finished. But we know now that wasn't the case. And so later on that day, we're going to pick up the story from Luke 24, verse 13. Later on that day, two of Jesus' followers, so not part of the disciples, but people that were following Jesus during his ministry, Two of these followers were walking to the village of Emmaus, seven miles from Jerusalem. As they walked along, they were talking about everything that had happened, because this was like the big news story. This was the talk of Jerusalem, the talk of all of Israel, was what about this Jesus Messiah guy who the religious leaders convinced the Roman governor to kill? What's going on with this? 
And so as they talked and discussed these things, Jesus himself suddenly came and began walking with them, but God kept them from recognizing him. Jesus hides his identity from these two disciples. And Jesus asked them, what are you discussing so intently as you walk along? You know, a a fair question for this, you know, would-be stranger walking along these two guys. And so one of them, Cleopas, replies, you must be the only person in all of Jerusalem who has not heard what's happened these last few days. What things, Jesus asked. Now, come on, like, Jesus has got to be, you know, a little snickering. Like, come on. Like, Jesus knows what happened, but he asks these guys, what happened? What's been going on in Jerusalem? What's got this whole nation, this whole area in such an uproar and and trying to figure out what's going on? And so they respond to Jesus. They say, these things happened to Jesus, the man from Nazareth. They said he was a prophet who did powerful miracles, and he was a mighty teacher in the eyes of God and all the people. They were recognizing the things that Jesus was doing during his time on earth, that he was a prophet, that he did miracles, he was teaching in ways that the religious leaders of their day could not teach because he taught with an authority that was unlike any human authority because he was God himself, put on flesh, come into our world to reveal how to have a relationship with God, how to be in a deeper connection with God. And so these two followers continue and they say, but our leading priests and other religious leaders handed him over to be condemned to death and they crucified him. We had hoped he was the Messiah who had come to rescue Israel. And this all happened three days ago. Now this term Messiah means anointed one. And all through the Hebrew scriptures, what we call our Old Testament now, there are these promises that one day God would send a deliverer to rescue Israel, that God would step into the story of humanity and he would change and reshape the whole way of how people would connect to God. And they said we had thought he was the Messiah. And they said that because to them, Jesus checked off all the boxes to be the Messiah except for one. Jesus didn't rescue Israel the way that these two disciples thought that Jesus would. Because no one expected that the Messiah would have to die. They thought that the moment the Messiah died, that was the final nail. Nope, wasn't the Messiah. We were all mistaken. Carry on. Because during this time period, there was three kind of main schools of thought about what the Messiah would be. And they were these kind of predictions that we kind of categorize into three categories of what we know about what they thought the Messiah would be. And one group thought that the Messiah would be a warrior, that the Messiah would come and raise an army and would drive out Rome by the, so- by the sword and use military power to make Israel into an independent nation that could follow God again. And that was, that was one of the large areas where, and oftentimes before Jesus, there was these would-be messiahs, people that would decide to say, to take the fate of Israel into their own hands and say, I'm going to raise up an army and we're going to fight against Rome. And what they learned time and time again is when you fight against Rome, you lose. A group of peasant farmers that are putting together and stealing whatever weapons they can are no match to a legion of centurions. You know, you just lose when you fight Rome. But this was one of the thoughts, that the Messiah would come and lead an army. Another group thought that the Messiah would come and would become the leader through political means, that they would unite the different factions within Judaism under one common leadership, and that the Messiah would be a political leader that would be able to stand toe-to-toe with Caesar and push Caesar back. And still another group thought that the Messiah would be a priest, 
would come and would reform the temple and reform the way that they worshipped God, and that would usher into this new era of Israel. And so these these two followers, we don't know which one of these three groups they fit into, but they said, we thought he would be the Messiah. But obviously they thought that Jesus couldn't have been the Messiah because of his death. And now... Jesus speaks up. Remember, they don't know this is Jesus who's talking to them, but Jesus speaks up and he says to them, you foolish people, you find it so hard to believe what all the prophets wrote in the scriptures. Wasn't it clearly predicted that the Messiah would have to suffer all these things before entering into his glory? See, what Jesus tells them in this moment is that they should have known what was going to happen to the Messiah from their own scripture, from the, the, the Hebrew scriptures, our Old Testament. Jesus is saying, if you had read this, if you had understood it, you would have realized that exactly what happened to Jesus is what had to happen to the Messiah. And so Jesus continues. And we get this one verse that probably encompasses the whole rest of their journey from wherever they were to Emmaus. It says, then Jesus took them through the writings of Moses and all the prophets, explaining from all the scriptures the things concerning himself. You know, we get one sentence in Luke's account of this story, but this was probably hours. This was hours of Jesus starting with Moses and going through every promise of the Messiah, every time the prophets spoke about what God would do in the future, what was coming next. And Jesus is pointing out to them that every single time, It pointed to exactly what happened to Jesus of Nazareth, what had just happened in Jerusalem in the last week. And so finally they come to Emmaus and Jesus fakes like he's going to continue on his journey even though it's nightfall. And these two followers beg Jesus and say, no, you need to stay with us. Stay with us for a meal at least. Stay with us for night. Continue your journey the next day. And so Jesus agrees and he sits down to eat. And this is the part of the story that I love. I think it's hilarious. Then Jesus sat down to eat. He took the bread and blessed it. And then as he broke it and gave it to them, suddenly their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And in that very moment, Jesus disappears. Now, scripture doesn't say this, but I cannot read this passage and not think that Jesus is like snickering and giggling to himself as he disappears. Like, haha, gotcha, it was me all along. Like, come on, it's gotta be there. Like, there's gotta be a a, a next missing verse of this. Because think about it, like Jesus has just walked with these guys for however long it takes to walk seven miles, you know, a couple hours, and he's been teaching them and he's been walking with them. And then finally in this moment where they sit down to have a meal together, Jesus breaks the bread, they realize, whoa, this is Jesus, we've been talking to Jesus, and then poof, he's gone. Like it's, it's hilarious, I think it is anyways, maybe I'm weird. But here's what happens, they have this moment of realization that they weren't just listening to some guy. They weren't listening to some fellow traveler that just had extra wisdom and insight. They were talking to Jesus himself. And if Jesus had, had shown who he was when he first approached them, they wouldn't have listened to a word he had to say. They would have been so overwhelmed and so excited that these reports of the resurrection were true, they wouldn't have had the opportunity to hear what Jesus wanted to teach them. They would have been so amazed. Wow, you really are the Messiah. They never would have had the chance to see. Look at how the Messiah fulfills everything that God promised. Because it was about them needing to learn that lesson. How did the Messiah fulfill scripture? 
And sometimes for us, it's the same way. We may pray, we may desire, we may say, God, you know, I want to see more of you. I want you to reveal yourself in my life. I want to know who you are deeper. And sometimes we want Jesus to reveal himself, but we haven't stopped to learn how God has already revealed to him, himself to us through Scripture. Because Scripture, the books of the Bible, and the, the word Bible just means the books. And I, I like using the term Scripture a little more because Scripture makes us remember that this is sacred text, that this is God's Word given to us for a purpose and a reason. It's not just a collection of writings. It's so much more than that. And Scripture is sufficient for revealing God to us if we look. And so these two disciples look at each other and they say to each other, didn't our hearts burn with us as he talked to us on the road and explained scripture to us? And within the hour, they were on their way back to Jerusalem because now they have to tell someone, they have to go find the disciples, they have to tell them, look, it's true, we can confirm Jesus was here and listen to what he taught us. Because what Jesus did with these two disciples on the road to Emmaus was he laid out plainly how every promise of the Old Testament became fulfilled by Jesus, that he really is the Messiah. And so they, you know, it's late, it was supper time when they reached Emmaus, now they're traveling the seven miles back to Jerusalem, so it's, you know, it's likely getting close to midnight by the time they find the disciples, it's, you know, it might even be early morning, and they're all gathered together, and they start telling the disciples, look, this is what happened to us, and they start teaching them. And as these two followers are teaching the disciples what Jesus just taught them hours before, Jesus appears in the room. And at first, the disciples think he's a ghost, and they're terrified. And Jesus says, no, no, I'm not, I'm not a ghost. I'm not ethereal. Touch me. He invites the disciples to touch him to see that he's real. And then he says, by the way, I'm hungry. You know, he probably has, he hasn't eaten in four days. You know, he's been stuck in a tomb. And so he says, you know, what do you have to eat? And they've got, well, we got broiled fish. And so they give him fish. One more reason to go fishing lots, right? Uh, Jesus ate it. Okay. Uh, So Jesus is here with these disciples in this room with these two followers. And now Jesus begins to teach the disciples. And he says to them, when I was with you before, I told you that everything written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Another one of these verses that I just, come on, Luke, couldn't you have paused and given us more description? What was that like to have your minds opened to understand the scriptures? Now, what that implies is that before this moment, they did not have a complete understanding of scripture. They understood portions of it or pieces of it, but they didn't have the full picture of what scripture was trying to teach. And this is what Jesus is laying out to his disciples, that the first place to look if we want to see Jesus is to open scripture and read God's word. Because God's word is not just a collection of writings that were put together 2,000 years ago and even further than that for the Old Testament. God's word is living and alive. And it's a way that God continually reveals himself to us. And Jesus refers to, you know, everything that was written in the book of, in, by Moses, by the prophets and the Psalms. I want to take us to one Psalm that was written about 450 years before Jesus. And there's this verse in the middle of this prayer in Psalm 119 that says this, open my eyes to see the wonderful truths in your instructions. Even 450 years be- ago before, they knew they were looking for 
How do we understand God's instructions more? Of saying sometimes, you know, when we read, we understand a surface level, we, but we need to go deeper than that. How do we open our minds? How do we open our hearts? How do we open our eyes to see more of how God is revealing himself to us through Scripture? And one of the things that, that I believe and I've experienced in many people, you know, there's probably someone sitting within three people of you right now that's experienced this too, times when God speaks to us directly through Scripture. Because God's primary way of speaking to us always starts with Scripture. Because Scripture is not just a dead collection of writings. It is alive, and it is powerful, and it is relevant to our lives now. And there's two main ways that God speaks through Scripture that we're going to take some time and and wrestle through these things and kind of start us on this journey of how do we, if we want to see Jesus through Scripture, these are the two first ways that God speaks through Scripture. And the first one is universally. Messages in Scripture that are meant for everyone. These are are when Jesus instructs us about how to live or how to follow the writings of the New Testament when the apostles were trying to teach churches, here's how to be a community, here's how to lean in towards God. These are universal messages. And even all throughout the Old Testament, there are the Old Testament reveals God's character and his heart in ways that we sometimes miss because we'd rather skip to the New Testament. And sometimes the Old Testament requires so much context and so much background to get our heads wrapped around some of the things because we are living so many millennium past that. You know, we struggle to understand what was life like for those group of people. But the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, reveal God's character and his heart and his love and his passion. And all of these messages that reveal who God is, how we're to live, these are for everyone. These are the ways that God delights in revealing himself. And sometimes when we talk about this, someone will ask the question of saying, yeah, but but what about all those laws? What about everything in the, the Torah, the first five books of the Bible? What about all those laws about like what you can eat and what you can't eat and how you, know, how you have to cleanse yourself, how you have to cleanse your homes, the rules about you know, not wearing uh, clothing that has two different types of threads? What about all those things? And there's 630-some commands in the Old Testament that formed the Hebrew law. And the Hebrew law, the the Levitical law, had this purpose of guarding the Israelites, of saying these are the boundaries of what it means to be a society. And in fact, we can take those 630 laws and we can break them down a little further into three main categories. There's moral law. This is how you live. You know, things like, you know, the Ten Commandments fit into that. You know, don't murder, honor your mother and father, do not steal, do not covet. Like, these are moral imperatives. This is how... Their society was to be shaped morally. And the other two categories were hygienic and dietary. And what's fascinating for us is we can read and we can look at the the hygienic and the dietary law and realize these laws were meant to protect the people. You know, we know now, because we understand what germs are, we understand that, you know, pork is not safe for consumption until it's been cooked to a certain temperature. You know, how would God tell that to a group of people pre-science, pre-literate to say, you know, if you're going to eat pork, you need to cook it to this temperature. So God made laws to protect the Israelites. And one of the things that the other nations' writings from those time periods remark is that the Israelites were remarkably healthy. They didn't have the mortality rates. They didn't have the sickness rates. Their population would grow faster than any other population because their law protected them. Now, 
there are these 630-some-odd laws, and when Jesus gets questioned about these laws, a group of religious leaders try to trap him, and they say, which law is most important? And they think, you know, based on his answer, we can trap him. We can, we can nail him with this one. And what Jesus says is this. He says, the first of all commandments is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. He said, the second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. And they all kind of were like, oh, didn't expect him to say that. I don't know how we can contradict that one. And then Jesus goes one step further. He says, all the law and the demands of the prophets hang on these two. What that means is Jesus is telling these religious leaders, if you just get these two things right, all the rest of the law will be fulfilled. The dietary law, later on, God gives a vision to Peter that makes him realize that the dietary law was for a season and a time and it's no longer applied. And the moral law is entirely encompassed by that first part of saying, love the Lord your God, love your neighbor as yourself. If you do those two things, you will not kill someone. You will not covet their oxen because if you love your neighbor, you will care for them. And later on, this is still an ongoing issue in the church. And so Paul writes to the Galatian church and he's trying to get them to understand that as followers of Christ, you are no longer bound by the law. It is useful for revealing God's character and it is useful for understanding, but it is not binding upon followers of Christ for this reason. Paul says, let me put it in another way. The law was our guardian until Christ came. It protected us until we could be made right with God through faith. And now that the way of faith has come, we no longer need the law as our guardian. This is what Paul's getting at. He says that Old Testament law, we don't want to remove it from our Bibles. We don't want to remove it and ignore it because it reveals God's love and his care. And it reveals his character. But as followers of Christ, we're not bound to follow that. We don't have to follow the law in order to be made right in God's eyes. Because Jesus came to make the way of faith open to everyone. So scripture speaks universally to everyone. But then there's the second way. And this is the way that gets exciting, that sometimes you know, makes us open our eyes to realize just how powerful God is. Is that scripture also has the ability to speak personally. Scripture has the ability to speak a specific message to an individual for a purpose. And you might be thinking, well, wait a second. Scripture was written to other groups of people. You know, Paul didn't know that Grand Valley was going to exist in the 2000s. He didn't know that this body of church was going to be here. And he didn't write, oh, and by the way, Grand Valley Church of Brandon, Manitoba, you're supposed to. Paul didn't write that. He couldn't have known that. But Scripture is alive. And one of the promises that Jesus made to his disciples, the night that he was arrested, he said, I'm not leaving you as orphans. I'm sending you the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit is going to reveal truth to you. And then we have two more instances of Jesus doing just that, of revealing truth. He reveals truth to the two followers when he walks them through scripture. And then to his disciples, he opens their minds to understand scripture. And then he sends the Holy Spirit And we have the Holy Spirit with us. And when we read scripture, the Holy Spirit delights in revealing it to us. And so there may be times when you are reading scripture and a certain passage tends to jump off the page at you. The the disciples on the way to Emmaus said, didn't our hearts burn? Sometimes you will read scripture 
And it feels like scripture is reading you and is directly saying something to you in that moment. That is, there's this theological term around it called illumination, of saying that the Holy Spirit shines a light on a passage and makes it stand up off the page because it matters to you in this moment. Now, a personal message, though, requires some steps. Because we have to, then we have to have this practice of discernment. How do we know for sure that we got it right? How do we know that we're not just, you know, it wasn't just that spicy pizza or tacos that you had the night before, you know, giving you some indigestion, and you're like, oh, that's the burning in my heart. No, that was too much hot sauce. How, we have to have a step of discernment. And the first step of discernment is this. A personal message from Scripture will never contradict the rest of Scripture. God will not tell you a personal message and say, you know, you, it's, it, you should cheat on your taxes, or you should steal, or you should, you know, it's okay to lie to your spouse. A personal message will never say anything like that because that contradicts the universal message of Scripture that matters to all. And so there's a first step of saying, do we actually know the universal message of Scripture? Do we know God's Word to know what will contradict? Because God will not tell you to do something that contradicts with Scripture. He can't do that. He's not going to tell you to break His law. So that's the first step. And the second way uh, of discerning a personal message is that a personal message can always be confirmed by other passages of scriptures or through other people. This is why community becomes so important, and that's going to be our focus next week. How do we be a community that represents Christ uh, to each other and to our world? But this is the first step, uh, the second step, sorry, in understanding a personal message from God is saying, do we sit down with someone and discuss it? You know, don't take a drastic action. If you feel like, you know, you read a passage, you know, like when Paul's walking through his journeys and suddenly it says, oh, and he went to the Isle of Troas and you're like, I should go to Troas. That might be a nice place for a vacation. God's telling me I should go and I should just go into debt. I should just pay it all in credit and go for a vacation. Yeah, you know, settle down, hold your horses for a moment. Sit down with someone, talk about it. Say, you know, this passage is jumping off the page and sit down with people that will commit to spending time praying and reading this with you and walking with you. This is why life groups are so important and why we talk about it so much here at Grand Valley. Because you may sit down and and you're like, I'm going to go on vacation. I'm going to go to this nice Greek isle. I'm going to have a lot of fun. It's going to be wonderful. And everyone's like, "Uh, no, just just simmer down a little. Because we may hear things wrong. But sometimes, you know, you may be reading through a passage and you have this sense of like, man, you know, I think God's just wanting me to spend more time with him. Okay, there's no downside of that one. Just do it. You know, sometimes we paralyze ourselves in this discernment because we feel like, you know, we need this like multiple signs, multiple like, you know, skywriting or something to confirm it. But if something is beneficial and good and has no downside, just start doing it. You know, lean into it. Talk with someone about it. Because... The point of the personal message and why God delights in speaking to us is because it proves that he is real and alive. God delights in showing that he is active. You know, we don't worship a dead God. We worship a God who overcame death, who is alive today, who desires a relationship with us. And, it's, and this whole piece of desiring a relationship is what sets Christianity apart from every other attempt at world religion. Because no other one has this same relational peace that defines who God is. 
He wants to speak personally to us because you cannot have a relationship with someone if you do not speak with them. And so God is always wanting to speak with us. Our issue and our holdback and our barrier is often that we are the ones closing the line of communication. The disciples, after the, the arrest and the crucifixion, they scattered and disappeared. They were fearful for their lives. They figured they were next. They were closed off to understanding what God was doing. And, you know, we, we make fun sometimes of Thomas. We call him Doubting Thomas, one of the disciples, because he said, you know, I can't believe this. He wasn't there when Jesus first appeared. And he says, when the other disciples came and said, hey, Jesus was here, Thomas says, you know what? No, I can't believe that until I get to touch him, until I touch his wounds and know it's him. And so the next time that Jesus appears, what does he do? He comes right up to Thomas and he says, here, touch my hands, touch my side where the spear pierced me. He gives Thomas exactly what Thomas needs to believe. That is the hallmark of a relational God, of a God who wants to give us what we need when what we need is more of him. Scripture, God's living word, makes our invisible God become visible to us because it is the first and the primary way that God always reveals himself. So let's go back to that late night when Jesus is with his disciples. He's appeared to them. They've overcome their shock. Jesus has opened their minds to understand Scripture in this new way, and he says this to them next. He gives them a purpose. He says, yes, it was written long ago that the Messiah would suffer and die and rise from the dead on the third day. It was also written that this message would be proclaimed in the authority of his name and the authority of the Messiah to all the nations beginning in Jerusalem. There is forgiveness of sins for all who repent. There is forgiveness for everything that separates us from God to anyone who chooses to repent, to anyone who chooses to come and change their ways. This is the purpose that God is leaning towards. This is the purpose of everything, why Jesus came, why he taught, why he did miracles, why he, why he rose from the grave, why he was willing to go to the cross in the first place, was so that this way of faith that Paul describes later, he call, uses that term, way of faith, this new path could be open. Because Jesus is breaking apart every barrier between humanity and God so that there can be a relationship. And he says there's a purpose. This message is to be proclaimed to all the nations. Everyone deserves an opportunity and a chance to know who Jesus is because everyone is created in God's eyes. Everyone is loved by God even when they don't know it themselves. And so if we want to share this message of God's love with our friends, our families, our community, and beyond, first we have to know God ourselves. We have to know his message. And so it's up to each one of us to decide how are we going to engage with God's word on a regular basis. Now, we're not going to talk this morning about how to build this into a habit in your lives because most of us, you know, we probably already know. And to be honest, this is a a personal thing that you have to wrestle through. And, And what I want to encourage you to do is on our website, we have discussion questions for the messages. And these discussion questions are great if you're in a life group. If you're not in a life group, you know, maybe talk about it with your spouse, with a friend. Or even if if you're not able to do that, just sit down and journal through them. Write out your answers. Think about them. Because it's about helping you take this further. 
And so in the discussion questions, there's some, some questions that will lead you towards this question of how can each one of us choose to make it a habit to spend time in God's word? Because that's where God wants to reveal himself to us. I love Sundays. I love getting together with all of you and being here and worshiping together and being able to walk through scripture together. But one Sunday or one hour on a Sunday is not enough. There's 168 hours in a week. What are we doing with the other 167? How are we connecting with God through the rest of it? Because one hour a week isn't going to be enough to sustain us. And so here's the bottom line. Here's what I want you to focus on and remember. If we want to see God, we have to look at Scripture. If we want to see God, we have to spend time in His Word. Because that is where God delights in revealing himself to us. And as we understand him, as we grow to know him more, it equips us to be able to see all the other ways that God is active in our lives. It allows us to see how God is walking with us through the situations. The song we sang about would be the anchor in the veil, the anchor in the storms. God, you are good. And we only know those things because scripture reveals it to us. And so if you are in the midst of that storm and you are looking for an anchor point, seeing God through Scripture. Now remember, Scripture itself is not the anchor. God is the anchor, but Scripture reveals God. So let's take a moment. Let me pray for us before we wrap up. God, you saw fit to give us your word. You saw that it was protected and guarded, and and reproduced so that we would have it here 2,000 years later. And God, you still delight in revealing yourself through Scripture, that you want us to seek and find you. And so, Lord, I pray for each one of us that, that when we open the pages of your Bible, when we open Scripture, that, Lord, would we be aware of how the Holy Spirit is guiding and illuminating Scripture to us? Would we be aware of how you are revealing yourself to us? God, would we see these, see you clearly through what you've done? And would that enable us to see what you are doing now? And Lord, would you give us discernment? Would you give us wisdom? Would you give us the right people around us so that when we hear from you, we have the community built in to discern and wrestle through and then be willing to take action and take what we have learned and put it into obedience? So Lord, would you guide us in these ways? Would you lead us deeper into knowing you? In your name we pray, amen. Folks, next week we are wrapping up this series called Invisible God. And we're going to be talking about how do we as a community see God and how do we reveal God to one another. So folks, I hope you see you here next Sunday. Have a great week. We hope this message helped you to take the next step in your faith journey. If you're in the area, we'd love to have you join us Sundays at 11 a.m. You can find out more about us by going to mygrandvalley.ca.